All I wanted to do was get the lint out of the dryer vent. My goal was neither big nor audacious, although you could say it was a little hairy. I'm not the handiest guy around the house, uh, but when my wife asked me if I could sort of clean out that tube that goes between the dryer and the wall, I thought, you know, how hard could this be? We actually had a tool that was supposed to help with that. It's this sort of spinny brush that goes on the end of the drill. And I thought, you know, this is going to take me like two minutes. Famous last words. Okay, so the, the spinny thing worked fairly well. You know, it got the lint out. But as I was finishing up, it snagged a hole in that tube. So I thought, oh, well, okay, not a big deal. I'll just go get another one and replace it. Half an hour later, I am, you know, trying to take the old tube off. And as I do that, I snap something that should not have been snapped. And then in trying to figure that out, I end up pulling something out of the wall that probably should have stayed in the wall. And this is where things get a little bit fuzzy. There were three or four more trips to a hardware store. There was some bad advice from someone who didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, we had to call in another guy to ask his opinion. And it, two weeks later, we did get it fixed. You ever been there? You start with something that you think is going to be sort of straightforward, simple, and then you're facing all sorts of obstacles you didn't expect. That's what we're talking about today. Today is the third week in a four-week series that we are calling Next, and here is the premise. We're studying the book of Nehemiah, and we're asking the question, what's next? What's next for us in our personal lives? What does God have for us? And what does God have next for us as a church? And as a way to get at that question, we've introduced this concept of a BHAG. Now, that's a term from the business world. It was coined by Jim Collins in his book, Built to Last, and it stands for Big, Hairy, Audacious Goal, although we've adjusted it slightly to be Big, Heavenly, Audacious Goal, because the point here is not uh, simply self-improvement or personal ambitions, as, as good as any of those kinds of goals, losing weight or getting a raise could be. Uh, what we're really talking about is looking out at the needs around us and saying, God, how do you want me to help with this? What do you want me to do with these things around me? So we're talking about both personal BHAGs, but we're also talking about our church BHAGs. But before we get into that, I want to ask a bigger question. I want to ask the question, does God have a BHAG? Does he have a big goal, a big project that he is working on? And I think the answer is yes. God's BHAG started way in the beginning when he created the world. God created a good world. You've got to understand this. God loves his world. He loves all that he has made. He delights in it. And he filled the world with tremendous potential. And then when he created human beings, he gave us the assignment. He said, go into the world and take all of that potential I built into the world and make something of it. And create something out of it. And here's what I want you to do with it. I want you to use what I have made to express what I am like. And so this is God's BHAG. His BHAG is that humans would fill the world with his love and his glory. That's what we were made to do. And it's supposed to happen in every area of life, from our families to our economies to our political systems to our neighborhoods, from our art to our technology. Every nook and cranny of creation is supposed to be used to show God's love and God's glory. It's a really, really cool project. But how's it going? Not that great. Because here's the thing. When God gave this assignment to human beings, this is what we did. We said, eh, nah, not going to do it. You know, God, instead of building a world around you, why don't we build a world around us, you know? Instead of filling the world with your glory, I'm going to fill the world with my glory. When we do this, when we reject God's calling on our life, this is called sin. And sin is corrosive stuff, let me tell you. When we rejected God's BHAG, we unhooked ourselves from God, the source of all goodness and all life. 
And in doing so, we unleash the forces of evil and death into the world, and it has wreaked havoc on everything. That's the reason why everything is not the way it's supposed to be. That's the reason why our relationships are so messed up. That's why the world is full of hunger and poverty and war. That is the reason why all of us are addicted to self-destructive behaviors. Sin ruins the world that God made to flourish. So what did God do about it? Well, he didn't scrap the project. He decided, I'm going to keep pursuing my BHAG no matter what it costs me. And in the end, it cost him a lot. It actually cost him his life. What God did to fix the problem was he came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He showed up and he said, I am going to take on all of the consequences, all of the results, all of the things that happen when you unleashed evil and death into the world. I'm going to bear all of them. And so when Jesus went to the cross, that's what he did. He broke the power of sin. And then when he rose from the dead, he broke the power of death. Because what God's got to do to get his BHAG back on track is he's got to free human beings from sin and from death. And that's exactly what happens anytime someone embraces Jesus as their savior and as their king. That's exactly what baptism is all about. What we're symbolizing here is this person going down into the grave just as Jesus went down into the grave. And with Jesus' death, their sin dies with him. And when they come out, they are raised to new life and they are going to live just as Jesus does. The power of sin and death has been broken in that person's life. Now, here's the really incredible thing. When that happens in someone's life, God comes to that person and says, guess what? I'm still working on my BHAG. I'm still going on the project. Do you want to join me in this? Do you want to come with me to fill the world with my love and my glory? And so this is where our goals and God's goals connect. This is where our BHAGs and God's BHAG touch. Let me use a couple of examples to illustrate what I mean by this. These are actual examples from goals that some of you put in our BHAG walls at the four campuses last week. Let's do this one here. This person says, I want for my husband and I to come alongside other hurting couples to mentor them along the way. I love this goal. This is the, the, let me explain how this works with God's big BHAG. God's big BHAG is to fill the world, including marriages, with his love and his glory. He says, I want people to flourish. I want all relationships to express what I am like. But sin has devastated that. Sin has come through and ruined marriages through, through conflict, through adultery, through boredom. Sin has just uh, uh, come in there and ruined stuff. And God is saying to this person, hey, I'm not done I'm not done. I want to actually still bring my love and glory into these situations. Do you want to join me? Do you want to come along on the project? And so God's big goal of bringing that to these marriages has become this person's goal. Or take this one. This is one of my favorites that I saw. This person says, I want to take my photography business and use it in a powerful way to bless others free of cost, to bless those who are probably going through tough times, cancer, disability, homeless, and so many other significant trials. I want others to feel beautiful and know they are loved. Here's God's BHAG. He wants a world full of his love and his glory. So he made human beings. Each person that he made, he made in his image a beautiful work of art that he loves. But because of sin, there are some people who feel ugly, who feel unseen, unadmired, undesirable. And it breaks God's heart. And he's saying to this person with a photography business, guess what? I want to restore these people. I want, to, I want them to know just how beautiful I think they are. I want the people around them to know just how beautiful they are. And I want you to use your camera to make that happen, to reveal the beauty I've put in these people. Do you want to join me in what I am doing? God's BHAG becomes our BHAG. 
We get a little sliver of God's big world restoration project, and God says, come along, join me. That's what we mean when we talk about BHAGs in this series. Here's how this connects with our church's big BHAG, this group of five projects that we're calling the next campaign. What we're doing is we're looking around at our community, and we're saying, God's already at work here in the community. We know it. He's got this project going on, and God's inviting us to join him. And so as a church, for over 30 years, we've been saying, okay, God, what's next? What's next? How do you want us to join in? And right now, we, we feel God saying, you know what? There are still more people to reach in the communities around us, around DeKalb and Blackberry Creek and all the different campuses. And, we, and God says, you want to join us in that? And we say, yeah, we'd love to reach more people. And we say yes to that. We realize, you know, we don't actually have the facilities to reach more people. We actually have to do something about that to actually pursue God's goal. We feel God saying, you know, hey, guess what? I want, there are some communities that don't have a good church like Christ Community Church. You want, you want to help me bring a church to those communities? And we say, yeah, we'd love to do that. And then we realize, well, in order to do that, we've got to raise some funds to be able to uh, start a new campus in another location. And so that's what we're doing. We're trying to pursue these things that we think God is doing in the community around us. Some of you, we're calling you to pursue personal BHAGs. And you might be thinking, you know, I, you know we've been talking about this. This is really cool. I love the idea but I just can't think of anything, you know? Like, I'd love to have a BHAG, but I just don't know what it would be. And I actually think we may have uh, sent a little bit of the wrong message last week when we had each of you fill out and write down on a piece of paper what your BHAG was, uh, as if it only took seven days to figure out, once we introduced the comment, uh, content, uh, what God was calling you to do. It actually might take longer than a week to figure that out. But if you're in that situation, you're like, I'd love to have a goal, but I don't have one. Here's what I'd encourage you to do. Keep doing what we talked about the first week. Keep your eyes open for the needs of people around you and maybe even start keeping a list of things you see going on. And then pray like crazy over that list and say, God, how do you want me to be a part of this? And I'm pretty sure over time, something's gonna rise to the surface and God's gonna say, this is what I want you to do. So keep pursuing it. Well, in order to understand how to approach BHAGs, we've been studying this Old Testament book of Nehemiah. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. It's about a little bit more than a third of the way through the Bible. If you kind of open up halfway, you'll probably run into the big book of Psalms. Just turn to the left a little bit, and you should find it. And we're going to start in chapter 4. And here's the reason why we're talking about the book of Nehemiah, and it's because it's kind of a miniature version of this big world restoration story. The city of Jerusalem has been ruined, and it's been ruined because of people's sin. And God is saying, I want to rebuild this city. I want to uh, renew it. And so he's been inviting his people to take on different bits and pieces of this uh, city renewal project. And Nehemiah's part is the walls around the city. So Nehemiah has showed up, made the walls his BHAG, and he's, he's gathered some people to start doing it, gotten some supplies, and he's gotten started. And at first, things go pretty smoothly, but eventually, he does run into some obstacles. So today, what we're going to do is look at some of the ways that he overcame those obstacles, and we're going to learn three lessons about this. The first lesson is this, prayer and planning go hand in hand. Prayer and planning go hand in hand. We're going to read in chapter 4, verse 1, and we're going to encounter a couple of Nehemiah's enemies, a guy named Sanballat and another guy named Tobiah. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble, burned as they are? 
Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they're building, (laughs) even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Who are these guys, Sanballat and Tobiah? These are actual government officials from uh, the regions around Jerusalem. Sanballat is the governor of the province of Samaria, which is right next door. And Tobiah is a lesser official of some kind uh, who had some influence in the region. And it's not spelled out directly in the text, but we can read between the lines that these guys felt threatened by Nehemiah. You know, Nehemiah's coming in, he's working on this city, and if he moves his project forward, the balance of power in the region is going to shift, and these guys are going to lose some influence. Technically, all three of them should be on the same team. You know, they're all officials in the Persian Empire, but they see Nehemiah as a rival, as a threat. So they, they, at first, they start to mock him, and they start to just try to get in the heads of his workers, to discourage them, get them to stop working. But when they see the progress that's being made on the wall, uh, the words don't just become words, they become actual physical threats. Let's keep reading in verse 7. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod, if you actually look at a map, that's all the people encircling the whole region around Jerusalem. When they heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. One of the assumptions that we often have, one of the false assumptions we often have, is that if we follow God, if we do what he asks us to do, that things are going to go smoothly for us. You know, like God's involved in it. It's just going to go easy now that we're doing the right thing. And Nehemiah might have felt this way, you know, real smooth up, up front. The, the king got on board. He got the supplies he needed. His trip to Jerusalem was easy. Uh, the people got in on his vision pretty quickly. And he probably thought, this is going to be no, no big deal, piece of cake. But here's what always happens when we get on board with God's world restoration project. We face opposition. Often it's external, you know, people criticize you, they don't get what you're doing, they, they question your motives, they just, you know, obstruct what you're up to. It might not just be outright hostility, it might just be sort of inertia, you know, the status quo strikes back because people don't like change. Or sometimes the resistance comes from inside, inside your own heart. Because the thing is, even if we're followers of Christ, there is a part of us that still remains resistant to God's purposes. We call that part of us our sinful nature. And whenever we try to do something that God calls us to, that part of us digs in its heels and says, no, I don't want to do that. Because the reason is, anytime you try to make a change in the world, automatically that starts to make a change in your heart. And your sinful nature doesn't want to be changed, and so it, it puts up all sorts of excuses and temptations to get you from doing what God is calling you to do. So whether from the inside or from the outside, we're going to face resistance. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we face trouble when pursuing what God wants us to. In fact, it would be surprising if we didn't face opposition. As long as we're in a sinful world, we will face resistance. So Nehemiah has these people push him back, and let's see what he does. Verse 9, he says, But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. I love that combination there. We prayed and we posted a guard. Prayer and planning go hand in hand. It's not an either or here. Nehemiah didn't choose seeking God or working hard. He doesn't pit spirituality and practicality against each other. Although a lot of times you and I, we think those are opposites. You know, there are some people who always emphasize the prayer side of things. They say, you know, if you really trust God, you can just sort of ask him for what you want. You can wait on him and he'll do it. He'll, he'll bring it about. He'll, he'll make it happen. You can just trust him, wait on him. Don't worry about it. There are other people who say, you know what? All that God talk, 
It's great on a weekend when you're in church. It sounds really good. It's inspiring. But, you know, in the real world, the thing that matters is a good strategy and hard work. Because if anything's going to get done, it's because we make it happen. So they choose the practicality side. But here's the thing. You cannot choose either or on this. You've got to have both. And in fact, if you try to choose one or the other, it may actually be a sign of lack of faith on your part. Because if you just plan and you don't pray, what that often means is you're going to do everything on your own strength. That your agenda is going to become bigger than God's agenda. And then when you get to the end of your plan, you're not going to step out into the impossible thing that can only happen if God shows up because that wouldn't be practical. On the other hand, if you only pray, sometimes that can look very spiritual, but it can actually be an excuse for your own fear. You don't plan anything. You don't set out to do anything because you're thinking, oh, I'll just wait on God. I'll just wait on God. But it's actually an irresponsibility in not answering God's calling in your life or not stepping out in faith in doing something that might be difficult. What looks spiritual is actually cowardly. So you've got to put the two together no matter what you're doing, whether you're looking for a spouse or trying to find a job or deciding about having children or any kind of life decision, you've got to put the spirituality and the practicality together. Well, how does this work with pursuing our personal hacks? Let me look at another example to show you how this might work. Someone said this, I would like to start a neighborhood Bible study in 2016. It's a fantastic goal. This would be wonderful if they did this. But it's going to need both prayer and planning if they're going to pull it off. I mean, they got to pray. they got to pray about uh, those people in the neighborhood who aren't going to like this, that are going to push back and be kind of ornery about it. they got to pray for open hearts for people to be receptive to what they're talking about. they got to pray for uh, people not to uh, flake out when they say they're going to come. they got to pray and pray and pray for God to do something. At the same time, they're going to have to plan. They're going to have to decide, okay, what kind of study are we going to do? What, what questions am I going to ask? Do I need to learn how to give a simple gospel presentation so that I'm ready when that comes up in the conversation? Uh, you know, when and where and how are we going to do this so that people can uh, be available for it? You've got to do prayer and planning at the same time. The same thing is true with our church BHAG, the next campaign. Uh, and let me shoot straight about this whole campaign thing because I, I understand that there are some of you who are kind of irritated by the, all the capital campaign talk. It's, it's sort of just unpleasant for you. Um, how many of you listen to public radio? Any public radio people? Okay. I'll just tell you right now, my, my first three presets on my car radio are NPR, XRT, which is a rock station, and K-Love, which is a Christian music station. Okay? So you can judge me however you want with that combination and even that order. All right? Um, but here's what happens. I, I usually get in the car and I... I turn on the news, and I usually enjoy what I hear, but every few months something happens that I just dread. Click on public radio, and it's pledge drive. And I'm like, oh, two weeks, they're going to be asking for money. And so I get, you know, I get what they're doing. It's a listener-funded station, so they got to do this. Nothing shady. But what do I do? I just flip over. I've got a bad mood, so I'm like, i got to listen to some worship music. I go to the Christian station. Guess what they're doing? Pledge drive. I'm like, oh, come on. Okay, so for two weeks, I listen to rock music, music, which is not the worst thing to happen to you. Um, but I know that feeling. You know, when, when uh, an organization you're connected to starts saying, we need to raise money, you're like, oh, okay. And, and part of that feeling comes from the fact that most of us don't actually get to be in the behind-the-scenes conversations and meetings when things are being planned. And we, and we don't get to be a part of all the buildup and the excitement of what we're doing. And it actually kind of raises questions for us because we wonder, you know, is, is this a good idea, you know? Is this, is, you're asking for a lot of money. This is a big deal. Have we made the right decisions here? 
And, and so some of you, the, the questions come kind of on the spiritual side. You know, you say, we're, we're talking about buildings and we're talking about facilities and all of this stuff, but is this really like something God has led? Is this just like, you know, business strategies and things like that? Or is this like uh, the spirit is moving us to do these things? That's a great question. Others of you, you're on the practical side and you say, you know, uh, like this is, a, this is a big project. You're asking for a lot. Like, have you really picked the right uh, goals? Are, have you really, you know, done your due diligence? Are you going to be responsible with the money that we give? Is this, is this a practical idea? And that's a great question too. So let me give you my perspective on this because I'm actually kind of a newcomer here. Uh, I've only been on staff full time for less than six months and I've only been around the church for less than a year. So this campaign was already in the works, already rolling before I got on board. I didn't have a hand in planning any of it. But here's what I've gotten to see as I've sort of peeked behind the curtains about how things work here at Christ Community Church. And two things have really, really impressed me from the very beginning, uh, especially about our leadership. This is a church that prays. And our leaders do a lot of prayer. I, I gotta, there are multiple prayer meetings each week among the staff. I felt like the first couple of weeks on board, I was like, wait, we got another prayer meeting? Didn't, didn't we just have a prayer meeting? Like, there's an, okay, I guess we'll go to the prayer meeting. Uh, our elders are prayers. Our trustees are prayers. Uh, the Jim, senior pastor, is a prayer. I know he wrote a book about it. It is not just theory. It is his real life. He's the real deal on this. I've seen it up close and personal. So I can tell you that hundreds, maybe thousands of hours of prayer have gone in to the planning and picking of these goals and in the, the planning of this campaign. The other thing that has impressed me is the way this church leadership plans. They, they do their work on this. Uh, they are financially solid as a rock. They, they do their research. They bring in experts. They consult with other churches. Anything that this church does, uh, they do with eyes wide open. This is a, a team that, that knows how to both pray and plan. And so as someone who has gotten to sort of peel back the curtain and see how the sausage is made, I'll just tell you, it's safe to eat, okay? They've got the, both the practical and the spiritual nailed. Let's keep moving. Second thing we learned from Nehemiah in chapter 5 is this. We need to lead the way with sacrificial service. We need to lead the way with sacrificial service. Uh, here's what's going on in chapter 5 for Nehemiah. He faces uh, some new obstacles that come from inside the camp. The situation is this, Nehemiah had to recruit a whole bunch of people to work on the wall, and some of those people were wealthier than other people. And it turns out that the work on the wall has been particularly burdensome for the poorer members of the community. Because what they've had to do is actually leave behind their farms, and, and they haven't been able to grow their crops this season. And what that means is they don't have food for their family. And so in order to get food, they've had to mortgage their fields out to the wealthier members of the community so that they can purchase food for their family, for their children. Then, as the, the king uh, collected his taxes, they realized, I don't have any money to pay. I don't have anything to offer. So this time, they had to go again to the wealthier members of the community and borrow money. Uh, and because they didn't have revenue coming in from their farms, they haven't been able to pay back that money. And so they've had to sell their children into debt slavery, which is kind of a way of working off the money that they owe. And so it turns out that Jeremiah, or not Jeremiah, Nehemiah's big BHAG of building this wall actually takes the biggest toll on those who have the least to offer and the most to lose. And so when Nehemiah hears about this, he is just ticked off. He, he hates to hear that the, the wealthier members of the community are taking advantage of the poorer members of the community. So he gathers all of the people and he, he publicly calls out the rich folks in the community and he makes them swear that they're going to return the fields that they have, have purchased and they're going to return the children that, that are working for them and they're going to stop charging interest on the loans that they have made. Because here's the way it's supposed to work. In the community of faith, 
everybody is supposed to use what they have for the good of everybody else, for the common good. The more that you have been given, the more you have to contribute. That's how it's supposed to be. But Nehemiah isn't just calling out other people to do their part. Nehemiah is actually saying, I'm going to lead the way. I'm going to lead the way with sacrificial service. So let's look in chapter 5 at what he does in verse 14. He says, Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until the, 30, the 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled and there for work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. So Nehemiah does three things here. Uh, first, he says, I'm not going to take either the taxes or the food allowance that normally the governor would take because that would be too burdensome for people. Then he says, I am personally going to work on the wall that we are building. Now, in those days, if you're the governor, that's, it's easy to say, I'm just going to supervise because it would have been undignified for a leader to get down and, and, and messy with manual labor. But he says, I'm not going to lord my position over people. I'm actually going to get messy, be there right by their side, and we're going to build this wall together. And the third thing he says is, not only am I not going to take food from people, I'm actually going to invite people into my home. I'm going to invite the poor workers, 150 of them each day, and I'm going to give them food from my table. They're going to eat like a ruler as they work on this, uh, even though they don't have uh, food from their own places to, to eat. So he says, I'm going to lead the way with sacrificial service. Anytime we're pursuing a BHAG, it's going to require sacrifice from people. Uh, if we're pursuing something that's really worth doing, it's going to cost us something to pull it off. And for a leader, a leader's job is not to make that process painless for everybody. It's going to pinch for us. But what a leader's job is to do is to take some of the biggest burdens so that people can carry their lighter burdens a little bit easier without having to carry more. So when it comes to your personal BHAGs, here's how this works. You need to pay attention to how your pursuit of this goal is affecting the people around you. You know, if you're going to ask people to help you out or uh, you pursuing it's going to have side effects on your family or friends, you've got to say, how is my goal burdening other people and what can I do about it? Take this one for example. Uh, someone said, I want to be a great son to a sick mom. Uh, this is, this is uh, such a fantastic goal. Because I know for a lot of you, you're already deeply involved in the needs of people around you. You're already taking really seriously uh, what people around you need. And so for you, your BHAG is not going to be some you know, new entrepreneurial venture out there in the world. It's going to be simply saying, what's the next thing I can do for this situation that I'm already invested in? Now, I don't know the backstory for this one about being a, a, a great son to a sick mom, but I can imagine the kind of situation that might make someone write this down. And, and I know that often when a relative is sick or dying, the whole family has to gather around and offer care. And sometimes that's uh, pretty burdensome, and the burden is not always distributed evenly. It's a little lopsided. Someone has to take more of it than another. 
And whether you're in that situation or not where you have more or less, you've got to always be asking the question, okay, what can I do to enable my siblings, to enable the rest of my family to serve my mom better? Can I contribute more to the medical bills? Can I uh, offer an additional evening to go over to her house to take care of her? Uh, Can I open up space in my home to to let her come live with me? How can I lead the way in sacrificial service for my mom and for the rest of my family? Uh, The same thing goes for the next campaign, our big church BHAG. Some of you are feeling about this the same way that those poor members of the community in Nehemiah's day were feeling about his wall. You're thinking, my budget is tight, I don't have a lot to offer, and you're asking me to give more? Like, this is not going to go well for us. And for some of you, that is totally legitimate. You are in an extreme financial situation, and it's unreasonable for you to give more than your already regular faithful giving. But for most of us, and I would say almost all of us, we do actually have the capacity to give more than we normally do. Uh, If you look at it on paper, if you look at our budgets, we can find ways to give more. And the problem usually isn't in the budget. The problem is usually in our hearts because it's stressful and threatening to be asked to give more. And I totally understand that. Uh, In the past, in a previous church that I was a part of, I was around for three different capital campaigns over the time I was there. And in every single situation, I was in a place financially where I wasn't making a lot of money and my budget was tight. And there were times when I thought, is this really worth it to contribute to these projects? Uh, And there was one time when we were building a new building. We were going to relocate our church uh, in the same way that we're going to do that in DeKalb. And when I heard about the plans at first, I thought, is this this the right thing? You know, do I really want to be a part of this? But I decided I would give anyway. I gave, you know, it was pretty begrudgingly, but I gave to the, the campaign. And in retrospect, I am so thankful that I did. Because when we built the building, I I saw what happened. The very first day we opened the doors, there were people who had never been to church or hadn't been to church in a long time. And they said, I'm going to wait until this new building opens up. And on the first day, that'll be the day that I'm going to go check it out. So on the very first day that we opened up the new building, there were hundreds of people that got to hear about Jesus Christ because of that. And over the years after that, I got to see people come to know Christ in that building and lives changed there and needs met there. And I was so thankful that I actually got to be a part of, of making that facility happen. And I also know that in that situation, if all of us hadn't chipped in, even those of us with not a lot to give, uh, we might not have gotten it done, that we needed everybody. You know, I I think of Nehemiah's wall. He needed all of the workers to do their part, even if it was a stretch for some of them. And the same is true for this campaign. We've got to have everybody on board if we're going to pull off raising $11 million. Now, here's the thing about this, though. We are not actually asking most of you to make the biggest sacrifices or bear the primary burden of this campaign. In fact, we're asking those in our community who have the most to give to make the biggest sacrifices. Uh, God has been very generous to many people in our church, enabling them to make far more money than they need to live. And anytime God gives someone great wealth, it always means that God is calling that person to great generosity. He gives them those resources so that they can distribute it for his BHAG of filling the world with his love and his glory. That's what it's for. And now our church has been blessed with some incredibly generous people. And I mean incredibly generous people. Uh, Unlike Nehemiah, we don't need to call out the rich people in our church to give sacrificially. They are already doing it. And it is these uh, regular faithful givers who are going to be taking the lion's share of the campaign. I don't know if you've actually looked at the chart here in the campaign booklet and seen that out of the $11 million, one-third of it is going to be covered by 20 people. That is huge. 20 people out of 5,000. But here's the thing. That generosity, the reason that happens, 
is not so that the rest of us can sit back and say, you know what, we're just going to let the super rich among us take care of the big things and we'll just sort of let them do that. Now, the reason they're doing that is because they're leading the way with sacrificial service so that the rest of us can chip in with what we have to follow their lead in giving to this. The other thing you need to know is this. It isn't just our financial leaders that are going to be sacrificing. It's our ministry leaders too. I know that is a really natural question to ask when a church is raising a big sum of money. Like, okay, is this just going to go to line the pockets of the pastors? Like, this is a rich church. The pastors are probably already doing pretty well. Like, should I really give money to that? So let me tell you how this is going to affect our staff. First thing you need to notice is that none of the five goals in our campaign are staff bonuses, okay? So none of us are going to get any money that goes to the next campaign. The other thing you need to know is that every one of us on staff is going to be giving sacrificially as a part of this. Uh, We already have a a really generous staff. Every pastor on staff gives at least 10% of their income regularly to the uh, normal church budget. And all of us are going to go above and beyond that for this campaign. I'll just tell you what my family and I are thinking. Uh, So we're thinking, okay, the church budget normally is uh, about $11 million. And over two years, we are going to try to raise an additional $11 million uh, on top of what we normally do. So that's about one and a half times as much money that the church is going to try to bring in uh, over the two-year period. So we've said, okay, what's our part? What do we normally give? We're going to multiply that by one and a half. And over the next two years, we're going to give one and a half times what we normally would. And that's sort of our baseline. And we're saying, okay, God, is, do you want us to give any more than that? Do you want us to stretch any more than that? Because we, we want it to be a little stretching for us because we want to grow in our generosity. And th- I'm not saying any of this to brag or to show off or anything, but just to reveal to you, this is how the staff is thinking about this campaign. We're saying, how can we make sacrificial service uh, the way that we lead? Um, and all of us are doing this. Also, just so that you know, next week, before anybody else makes a commitment to this campaign, uh, we are going to announce the amount that our staff, our elders, trustees, and financial leaders are giving to the campaign so that you can know that we're already in before we ask you to do that. Let's turn to the final lesson we get from Nehemiah about how to overcome obstacles. This is from chapter 6, and it's simply, keep calm and carry on. Keep calm and carry on. Maybe you've seen the old British war posters with that. Well, in chapter 6, Nehemiah faces a number of obstacles in rapid succession, and at first they seem like serious threats, but on further examination, they turn out to just be distractions. So here's what happens. Sanballat, he decides, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite Nehemiah to come and have a meeting with me. You know, where let's talk face to face, let bygones be bygones, and work things out. Now, Nehemiah realizes pretty soon that this is not, a, you know, a work things out conversation. This is an ambush. And so he says, eh, Sanballat, I'm not going to go. I'm just going to keep working on the wall. Then Sanballat uh, publishes an open letter criticizing Nehemiah and saying, you know what they're doing? They're setting up a, re- a revolution. They're setting up a rebellion against the empire. The reason they're building these walls is because they want to revolt. And Nehemiah has set himself up as king. Now, Nehemiah knows this isn't true. And he says, uh uh-uh, you're making it all up. I'm just going to get back to work and not bother defending myself. Then uh, Sanballat hires a guy to pretend to be a prophet and bring a message from God that says, you're in trouble. Someone's going to attack you. Nehemiah, just go hide in the temple and sort of wait for all of this to blow over. And Nehemiah says, okay, well, maybe that's going to happen, but I'm not the sort of guy that runs from trouble, so I'm just going to keep working on the wall. Nehemiah hears all of these things, and he just keeps calm 
and carry on, carries on. He can't appease his critics, you know, so he's not going to try. He can't defend his reputation from every rumor that comes by, so he's not going to worry about it. He, he can't avoid all risk in what he's doing, so he's not going to get thrown into a panic anytime something seems dangerous. He's just going to keep calm and carry on. Same is true with our personal hacks. We're going to need to do this. So take this one, for example. Uh, this person says they want to minister to families in need by helping out with their children through safe families. We're praying to make a difference in the children's life and their family. This is really cool. I've seen a, a lot of BHAGs out on the BHAG walls about foster care, about safe families and adoption, and that is great. I love it. Uh, and if you're pursuing that goal, I just want to uh, fill you in from personal experience. I grew up in a, a foster family. I have uh, eight adopted siblings. And so I know that in that journey, there are a lot of things that are going to come up that are going to feel like threats, but are actually distractions. So you're going you're to have things like your, the rest of your family is going to wonder what you're doing. You know, your friends aren't going to get it. Like, why aren't you having more of your own kids? Why are you helping out these other kids? You're going to run into people who have prejudices about certain ethnicities, and then you're going to have a kid come in your home from that background, and they're going to act weird around you. Or, or from your own heart, you're going to have questions and fears come up about how much it'll cost, or the inconvenience, or the, the stress it'll bring, or, or even fear for your children's safety, or, or whatever. And I just want to tell you that these sorts of things come up, but they're not actual barriers to you helping children and families who are in need. They're distractions, and they will only be threats if you let them distract you. You just need to keep calm and carry on. We're, we're doing this capital campaign, and the same thing applies here. Uh, there are all sorts of thoughts that may come up in your mind as we, we talk about this that honestly are just distractions from the real question, the real question of how, do, how is God calling me to be involved in what we're doing here at the church? So some of you might be thinking, okay, why are we even talking about money so much? I mean, like I came to church to talk about spiritual things, and why can't we talk about that? Well, here's why we talk about money. The reason we talk about money is because Jesus said the most spiritual thing there is, is money. He says money is the best revealer of where your heart is. What you do with your money shows what you value and what you love. And so Jesus talked about money more than any other topic. Uh, some of you might be thinking, okay, well, we're raising all this money, but shouldn't we be raising it to help out people in need, not just build buildings? And one answer to that would be, you know, we are actually raising this money to help people in need. 10% of it is going to go to community impact and international impact projects that are going to help people in need in our area and around the world. And every time we build our facilities, we actually use those facilities to help people in the area who are in need. So this money actually does go to serve other people. But that's not the point. Uh, the point is that uh, if you're worried about that, if that's your big question, uh, then I I'm not too worried about you. If you've got a big check and you're, you're saying, I'm going to write this out to somebody, I'm going to be real generous, and it's either going to go to the next campaign or some charity that's helping out people in need, I say, cool, follow God's lead on that. But for a lot of people, when that question comes to mind, it's not actually about, I've got something I want to offer, where should I offer it? It's, should I offer anything? And it's actually a distraction from the real, real question of, what does God want me to give? Or you might be thinking, you know, I really do want to give. I want to be a part of this, but I don't want to make a commitment to what I'm going to give. You know, the economy is uncertain. I don't know what the next two years are going to hold, so I'll just give as extra money comes in. And I understand that. That makes a lot of sense. But I want to challenge it just a little bit. It's actually worth going through the process of praying about and making a commitment uh, because uh, even if you don't know what's going on, it's actually grow it grows your faith to go through that process. To say, God, I, I know this is a risk, I know it's uncertain, but what do you want me to do? And you step out with a little bit of uncertainty and you trust God. 
And the other thing you need to know about this is too, if you make a commitment and it turns out that over the next two years you, you, you lose your job or things go south and you can't give what you wanted to give, no big deal. It is not a contract. We're not going to you know, pester you or kick you out of the church or do anything uh, if you can't give what you thought you wanted to give. Uh, the, and really, this is just a way for us to know that you want to participate and at what level. There, there might be other questions that come to your mind as we talk about this, but I just want to let you know, a lot of those are distractions. And the real question you should ask is, what is God calling me to do? How is he calling me to be a part of this? Uh, obviously, there, we've got visitors and guests here every week, especially on a baptism week. And you need to know, we are not talking about this to you. We are not expecting you to be involved in this in any way. Unless, of course, you're inspired by it and you're like, I want to be a part of this church and you want to be a part of the church family then you can give if you want. But uh, this is really just for those of us who are regular parts of this community and saying, how can we be involved? In about two weeks, on November 13th and 14th, uh, all of us are going to be bringing our commitment cards to say, here's what uh, I'm pledging uh, to give over the next two years. And we're going to be submitting those during the worship services uh, during those weekends. And so what you need to be doing now is praying about Uh, what God would have you give. You may already have kind of a a number in mind of what you want to give, and I would encourage you, keep praying. Does God want you to stretch you a little bit more, bump that up a little bit, um, and ask him, what does he want you to do? Start having the conversations among your family. All of this is big stuff. All of this is challenging. Your personal BHAGs, our church BHAGs, God's big worldwide restoration project, it's huge. We're going to face obstacles as we pursue these things. But I'm given a lot of encouragement at what Nehemiah, by what Nehemiah says at the end of his project. In, in chapter 6, verse 16, Nehemiah says this, This work, the wall, had been done with the help of our God. It had been done with the help of our God. At the end of this summer, uh, we threw a block party in our neighborhood. And my five-year-old daughter was super excited about the block party. It was probably because we are going to have a bouncy house. Uh, but we were, we were setting things up, and she was like, I want to be, be a part of setting it up. So she followed me around for the afternoon, and uh, she said, what can I do? What can I do? And at one point, uh, my neighbor and I needed to move this uh, big wooden uh, picnic table from his yard down to the street where we were having the party. And it was about 100 pounds, and so we each picked up one side. And my daughter ran up and said, I want to help. So I said, okay, Annalise, go ahead and you know, put your hand on the, the table. And so she put her hand on the table. It's about 50 yards down to the street, and we walk on. And two-thirds of the way down, she sort of takes her hand off and runs off and says, I'm so strong. And we just keep walking, not missing a step, and we set the table down. Now, do we need Annalise's help? Not at all. We didn't need it. Uh, did she need to contribute in order to get the party to happen? No, it was going to happen either way. That goal was going to be accomplished. But what was the purpose for her being involved? It was the joy of getting to come alongside her father and say, I want to help you in what you're doing. To come alongside her community and say, we're going to throw a party. And to know that when the celebration happened, she had a hand in making it happen. This is how it works with God's goal. It's going to happen. He already sent his son to die and rise from the dead to ensure that it's going to happen. So nothing's going to stand in the way of having the world filled with God's love and God's glory. It will happen. The question is, will you be a part of the little sliver that he's saying, do you want to join me? Do you want to have the joy of being a part of making the celebration come off? We're going to call out the bands at each of our four campuses. We're going to sing another song, and during that song, we're going to take our offering. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so amazed at the goal that you have, that you want to fill the world with your glory. You want to show the world what you are like. You want everything to express who you are. That is amazing. We look forward to that day when your glory covers the earth as the water covers the sea. 
And God, we are are so encouraged by the fact that you have guaranteed that it is going to happen. That when Jesus defeated sin and when he rose from the dead, that that means nothing, nothing, nothing can stand in the way of you getting your goal. And God, we're so thankful that you let us in on it. Like we are the ones who screwed it up in the first place. We're the ones who went our own way and abandoned your goal. And now you're inviting us back in. You're forgiving us. You're transforming us. And you're saying, do you want to play a part? And God, we're so, so thankful for that, God. Right now, we just ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would move us and empower us to do the part that you're asking us to play. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.